a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And the second reading, Matthew 4, verse 12 to 17. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow, those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Morning, how are we doing? Only two people are doing well. Old joke, old joke. I love Christmas. Does everybody love Christmas? Yep, at least one person loves Christmas. Uh, in fact, actually, for the last few years of my life, I've begun starting to listen to Christmas carols in July. Because my thinking is that if I actually start listening to Christmas carols in July, it would actually take me six months to psych myself up. And by the time I get to, Chris to December and Christmas, it will be awesome. If I had my way, I think we would just start preaching Christmas sermons in July. But of course, that's not the case. Uh, let me pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your gift to us, your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that um, in him we have the gift of life. We have the gift of eternity. And we ask that as we come to this season um, where we remember Jesus' birth, that you... Um, show us the true meaning of Christmas. You show us the importance of his birth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, in our high-tech savvy lives today, predicting the future has become uh, somewhat of a normal part of everyday living. Uh, I know it sounds strange, but in one way or another, each of us actually practice predicting the future on a day-to-day -day basis. For example, um, Everyone checks the weather app every day, don't, don't they? Do you, yeah? Checking the weather app is as if it's like the most natural thing. The first thing I wake up in the morning is to check the weather, to know, you know what's the temperature going to be like. Is it going to be raining? Is it going to be sunny? Is it, am I going to wear shorts? Should I wear my jumper? Should I ride my bike? Or should I drive to work? Um, or maybe, maybe like me, you might have a financial investment somewhere. And you know that 
uh, predicting the future is actually part of the game. Uh, you have to be up to date with what's happening. You have to see through piles and piles of information, um, just trying to find out maybe there's a uh, there's, uh, predicting where market trends might go. Maybe there's an untapped market opportunities. And to accurately predict the future and prophesize market trends is a much, much sought after gift and tool in our age, in our world today. To accurately predict the future is actually to give ourselves a tool and a hope that we could actually somehow better our lives. This is why when we make um, wrong predictions in life, we usually gasp in frustration and say, oh, if only I knew. If only I knew that Maccas had their chicken McNugget special going on, I would have gotten such a great deal that my life would be complete. Uh, well, one other prediction that might have gone wrong this year uh, is the US presidential elections. Now, uh, let's be honest here, let's not be coy. Um, nobody, all right, nobody except the Simpsons saw this coming. Very few people thought that the Donald would be the president of the United States. Uh, even the major polls from the major media sources suggested that um, that the trend was actually going towards Hillary Clinton's favor. Um, but obviously, they got that prediction wrong. And so many people in the mainstream media started asking the question, how could we have gotten this wrong? How could our polls have gotten um, our predictions so wrong by such a far margin? Now, I'm not a political analyst. I don't claim to be one. But this mis misjudgment of the future actually does remind us that the world can be a very unpredictable and very vulnerable place. Our desires to predict the future actually come out of a realization and the, and, and the fact that we do, we are never certain of the things that are to come. And that we do live in an uncertain, very volatile and vulnerable world. Um, and it's also a world that's actually very similar to that in Isaiah. See, the book of Isaiah was written by the prophet Isaiah during a time when the nation of Israel was faced with great uncertainty and turmoil. So what's the backstory? Well, after, death, after the death of King Solomon, the nation of Israel had divided itself into two kingdoms, to the north, there was the kingdom that was called Israel. And then to the south, there was another kingdom that separated that was called Judea. So the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom Israel, joined forces and made a coalition with a foreign nation called Assyria. And in this coalition, they decided that they were going to gang up against Israel's younger sibling in the south, Judea. And so there was this very tense political situation that the that Judea was in. And the whole book of Isaiah is written to Judea to address this particular issue. It is a word from God who wants to reassure Judea that God has got their back. And also a plea to Judea not to give in to its bullies, not to give in to its enemies, or not to even make other forms of alliances and coalitions which with its surrounding neighbors. 
So, chapter 9 of Isaiah, which is our reading for today, shows us a very specific picture of the future and what the world will look like beyond the Israel and Assyrian crisis. This isn't just a prediction of the future. It's not just fortune-telling, but more like a, a plan, a blueprint plan of what God is going to do in the future. Uh, if I could use an illustration, uh, when I was a young teenager, I got romantically involved with a girl, as um, most boys would have done. And unfortunately, that girl dumped me. And like most devastated romantic relationships, you know, I, uh, and being immature at the time as well, I, I, I became depressed, I, I caved in, you know, I spent nights and days um, caving in, in my room, thinking, oh, the, my walls ended, my, my walls are all caving in, how can I go on living my life with, what's my future going to look like? All these, you know, usual, typical, sappy, 18-year-old questions. Um, but... At the time, it, it was real weighty issues for me. It was real things that I had that I was struggling with. Um, so I spent um, the f I remember the first night after being dumped by text messaging. Not the best way, can I just say? Um, I I couldn't sleep. I, I I stayed up the whole night just thinking, thinking. I just couldn't go to sleep. Um, and of course, uh, you know, being a kid, you you you. I, I took, you know, I, I spent five hours strumming the guitar and, you know, playing emo songs, trying to console my myself. Um, and then six o'clock in the morning, my dad walks into the room, and my dad, by the time, obviously, he had known what had happened to me. My mom told him, you know, the girl dumped me, blah blah blah. Um, he walks into the room. Um, he doesn't say much. Um, he looks at me, and he just all he did was just to ask me this question: "Son, how are you doing?" That's it. That's all he said. And I remember just, I didn't know how to respond. I didn't know what to say. Uh, I, I couldn't articulate my feelings, and I just burst down. Um, I mean, I was already crying, but this was like the real major flood of crying that came when he asked that question. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, all he did after that was to put his hand on my shoulder, as loving dads would do, and he said, you know, don't worry, the, the future will be all right. Your future will be all right. You will have a brighter future. And of course, over time, over the years, though it was tough, I did progressively get better to the point where I could look back on myself in the past and say, you know, like, yeah, I, I did get better. My dad was right. I, I did get through this point of my life. I did pull out of it, and, and, and I became a stronger person as a result of that. Now, was my dad trying to predict my future at that time? giving me support as if he was handing me like a Chinese fortune cookie, or just break this and you know, you, you, you'll find out what fortunes in store for you in the future. No, I don't think my dad was just predicting the future. I think he was doing far more than that. My father knew that my future was going to be all right because as a father, he was going to make sure that whatever happens to me, he was committed as a father to see me through my own difficult times. Would I know every single thing that would happen in my life? No. I don't know every single detail about how my life would pan out. But I knew for certain that come what may, my dad has got my back. 
And that's what family is, isn't it? That we can count on family through the hard times. That family members will be with for each other through the highs and through the lows. And just as a parent would do anything to reassure and support their child in need, so too does God, our Father, reassures His children in Judea of the bright future that they have if they remain faithful to Him. And more than what our own earthly parents can do, because nothing is out of God's control. So, what does Isaiah 9 actually say about the future of Israel? Well, in a nutshell, Isaiah 9 is about a Savior who would be sent by God to vindicate and deliver God's people out of oppression. It's also by no coincidence that Bible scholars have broken down Isaiah 9 into exactly three paragraphs, which so happens to be our three main points. And I'm not making this up, by the way. Um, Point one, that this Savior in Isaiah 9 will bring light, the Savior will be victorious, and the Savior will rule forever. So point one, the Savior will bring light. Uh, In verses 1 and 2, there is an imagery of transition from the past into the future, from darkness into light. This would be a key feature of the Savior, that in His coming, He would bring a new dawn, a new era. He will be like a great light in darkness. Verse 2 says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. This is the dawn of a new era, when a beacon of hope breaks forth from the darkness. Kind of like um, Star Wars Episode 4, A New Hope, where Luke Skywalker comes onto the scene. Darkness in these verses here represent chaos, destruction, war, famine, death. All the things that hinder human flourishing and peace. Uh, do you ever get that feeling when you're, you know, you're, you're sleeping through the night and then halfway in the middle of the night you decide to wake up to go relieve yourself in the bathroom? I'm sure every one of us have relieved ourselves while sleeping. Well, not while sleeping, but <laughs> you get up from bed, you go to the bathroom, and there's just that, and you know that there's just that, that small gap in between getting up from the bed and walking to the bathroom. There's just just that small journey where you try so hard to not fully open your eyes because you just want to keep in sleep mode. You guys have that? Like, when I go to the bathroom and I just like, all right, if I just close my eyes or at least just, you know, squint one eye open just to get to the, the toilet, do what I need to, don't turn on the lights so that I'm still in sleep mode and by the time I get back to bed, I can still continue sleeping. Right? The last thing you want to do is turn on the lights and then just go, whoa, it's, you know, I can't go back to sleep after that. Um, well, a couple of nights ago, I didn't go to the bathroom, but um, it started to get quite stuffy at night. Uh, I think it was one of the nights where, it, uh, w- one of the days where it was like 35 degrees or something, and I woke up feeling stuffy, a bit, a bit grimy, and I thought, oh, anyway, I'm, I'm not going to continue sleeping. I really have to plug uh, the fan into the wall and get this, and get the fan going. So, I got up, um, didn't want to turn on the lights, um, got the fan, and I thought maybe, you know, like I've done this a thousand and one times. I plug things into the wall socket a thousand and one times. And surely, if I just do it by muscle memory, somehow, sooner or later, that plug has got to go into the electric socket, right? You think it would be such a simple thing to do in the dark. 
So, yes, I am a dog that needs to be taught tricks. So, <laughs> so I tried it once, didn't work. It's like, it's all right. Let's just do this again. Second time, it didn't work. A third time in the dark, it didn't work. And by the 10th time, it still didn't work. And I thought, all right, you know what? I just have to give in. I've got to turn the light on somehow. I got my phone out, turned the light on, um, shined it at where the wall socket was. And I saw, you know, I've, I've hit every single place around the wall socket except the wall socket itself. So, of course, with the help of glorious iPhone light, I managed to plug the fan in on the first try. I mean, it's just so stupid, isn't it? Why did I have to try 10 times to get it right when I could have just turned the light on or at least got the help of a torchlight to help me plug the fan into the wall? Well, what's the point of telling the story? Well, without light, without a beacon of light in the darkness, humanity is in despair and is stuck in decay. It is only when a beacon of light breaks through the darkness that it reveals truth for us so that we no longer walk in ways that are destructive, are harmful, but we walk in ways that lead to progress and flourishing. There's also a shocking revelation in verse 1 when Isaiah says that God will honour Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. It's shocking because firstly, Galilee is actually a region in far north of Israel, which means that these were like sort of like the rednecks, like the worst of the worst of oppressors um, against Judah. And even more so, these were Gentiles. They were foreigners. So this is kind of like saying that, you know, one day um, God is going to honor the enemy, which sounds controversial, doesn't it? Why would God honor the enemy? God is sort of like saying, hey Judah, I'm going to protect you against uh, Israel, but you know, at the same time, sometime in the future, I'm actually going to give a thumbs up to Israel and the Gentiles. While this may sound controversial for Judea, Judah, Judea, I don't know how you pronounce it, it's actually good news because it means that God is not only concerned for his own people to walk in the light, but also people from all nations and even the Gentiles. So there is a new dawn, a new era, not just for God's people, but also for their enemies and the foreigners. This new kingdom will be an all-inclusive kingdom. The Savior will bring light, and secondly, the Savior will bring glorious victory. Verses 3 and 5 then describe that the Savior will win a great battle in the future. But as a result of his victory, his people will rejoice with him and share in his victory and rewards. Verse 3 says, You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Uh, in the ancient world, when a king or an emperor had won a great battle against his enemy, the king will you know, usually gather the spoils of war, he'll gather, um, uh, and, uh, gather the, uh, the gold, the, uh, all the things that were valuable to the enemy, and he would divide the rewards amongst his warriors. Now, it perhaps wasn't always the case that kings and emperors would actually do that because they weren't necessarily obliged to do so. 
It was only by their sheer generosity would his people and citizens receive the rewards of victory. So in its context, this is Isaiah showing to us that the Savior would be like a generous king who is victorious in battle and shares his rewards with his warriors. But not only will he be victorious in battle, the Savior will also fight the ultimate battle that will annul all other battles. Verse 5 says, Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. You see, the Savior will win a battle so great and so important that no longer will there be a need for any form of weaponry. No longer will there be a need for any military equipment. All weapons and military equipment will be discarded into the bin and into the fire. Can you imagine that? A world that exists without any weapons. And not just because people are made to um, surrender or give up their weapons. This isn't like, um, you know, like how John Howard um, got all gun owners in Australia to give up, uh, give up their guns. But simply because there is just no need for weapons anymore. Peace will reign on earth. We will live in harmony. We will live in unity with each other. So much so, there is no point, there is no need to fight. And because there is no need to fight, there is no need to have weapons of destruction. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that have wouldn't that have huge implications for the world? Not to live in violence, to live in peace. No more wars, no more fighting, no more squabbling. What a wondrous thought that is to live in a safe world, couched in the arms of God, knowing that all the battles have been defeated through one person, the Savior's victory. The Savior will bring light the Saviour will be victorious, and the Saviour, thirdly, the Saviour will rule the world forever. And we get some to some of the most potent verses, in my opinion, in the Bible. These are some of my own personal favourite verses. Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, uh, it's no surprise that if you were going to rule a kingdom and if you were going to rule a country, having a title is important. Uh, no one's going to let someone by the name of Larry rule the world, right? No one's going to let someone by the name of Harry or Tom rule the world. Um, and many kings and queens have indeed have various titles associated to them. Uh, you could think of perhaps titles like the Prince of Wales, the Duke of York. And most of the time, these titles would actually sometimes actually say something um, about the person. 
something like, you know, maybe King Richard the Lionheart, maybe Genghis Khan the Great, or uh, Alexandra the Great. Um, and these titles symbolizes power. They symbolize strength and makes um, these rulers somewhat desirable. Now, nobody would want to walk around ruling the world with a title like Queen Bloody Mary, right? Or maybe even a title like this, John George I, Elector of Saxony, also known as the Beer Jug. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not the most glamorous title to have. Titles do reflect who a person is and why they should rule or not rule. And so verse 6 gives us a list of what the Savior will be called, and it is an amazing list. It is tremendous. Titles do reflect who a person is and why they should or should not rule. It says, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. These are titles that shows us the Savior's power, His sovereignty, His glory, and His splendor. There is so much that we could unpack from these titles, and I encourage you to go back in your own time to read up what these titles actually mean. Um, but there's a flip side to this, that these titles, while they do represent strength, splendor, and glory, they're also given to a child, a son who will be a gift to us. It is a gift that is not only powerful and mighty, but also gentle and humble in nature. Verse 7 then concludes by saying that this Messiah will be legitimate because he will descend from the line of David. The line of David because King David was God's chosen anointed king. And a king from David's line means that it will be of God's own choosing. He will have God's stamp of approval and favor upon him, which is how he will rule, upholding God's righteousness and justice forever and ever. In summary, these three points and things about the Savior, that the Savior will bring light, the Savior will bring victory, and the Savior will rule forever, would hopefully, hopefully by now, help you realize that it is talking about Jesus. But how do we know that the prophecy in Isaiah 9 is about Jesus? Well, in the New Testament, in Matthew's Gospel, the writer Matthew makes this direct link between Isaiah 9 and Jesus for us to see, which is our second reading. And I'll read for you again, Matthew 14, verses 12 to 17. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was the lake in the area of Zeppelin and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven has come near. Matthew confirms for us that Jesus is the prophesied Savior in Isaiah 9. 
He is the light that has stepped into the darkness, drawing from John's gospel. He is the one who will bring victory to the oppressor and establish peace and a kingdom that will have no end. That is exactly why at the very the very beginning of the same Matthew, uh, same gospel that Matthew's written, Matthew deliberately highlights at the start of his gospel Jesus' genealogy, tracing his family tree and heritage directly back to King David. Why? Because he wants to make a point that Jesus is the direct descendant of David. He is the legitimate heir and God's chosen anointed king for the whole world. But then we could ask a question. If Isaiah 9 is actually really indeed about Jesus, why do we still face uncertainty and chaos in the world today? Isn't the Savior in Isaiah 9 supposed to bring peace, bring, bring victory, bring light? Isn't He supposed to be ruling in this world now? Isn't Jesus, if He's the Savior, isn't He supposed to be here with us? And in fact, this is, this is a real this is actually the argument that most Jewish scholars used against Jesus. If Jesus is the Messiah, if He is the Savior, where is He? Where, where is this eternal peace that, that the Scriptures have promised? And in some sense, they are right. And if we have left it there, I would say, I would say that Jesus isn't the Savior of the world, as Isaiah 9 had foretold. But we've missed out a very something very important, and that is Jesus' death on the cross. You see, if we only looked at Isaiah 9 as a prophecy just only of Jesus' birth, yes, we would be disappointed. But if we realize that Isaiah 9 isn't just about Jesus' birth, but it also says something about his life about his death on the cross, then we can see Isaiah 9, that it is indeed about Jesus. Through Jesus' death on the cross, we no longer live in darkness, but we now live in the light. Through Jesus' death on the cross, he defeats the evil power of sin, bringing complete victory, freeing us from the bondages of sin, who is the real oppressor, an enemy of the world. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, He claims all authority on heaven and on earth and has begun to establish His governance over creation. This is why in Matthew's same gospel, at the very end, Jesus goes back again to Galilee before His ascension into heaven to proclaim to his disciples from the mountaintop in Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All nations in Israel, Judea, the Gentiles, and beyond. Isaiah 9 isn't just about Jesus' birth. It's also about what Jesus has done on the cross and what He will accomplish in the future. There is a bigger future that is yet to come. 
And this is the reason why we still live in a chaotic, in a vulnerable, unpredictable world today. Simply because Jesus is still yet to return. We live now in this tension between the past of Isaiah 9 and the future of Isaiah 9. We are living, as it were, in the prophecy of Isaiah 9. We are living in the now, but not yet. That while people around the world still live in darkness, still live in poverty, He will return again to bring ultimate light. While the majority of the world still live in poverty, in sickness, one day Jesus will bring an abundance of His harvest and then no one, no one will ever be in need again. While we still face injustices today, we still face wrongdoing, corruption, and we still live in a dangerous world. Jesus is away now by the Father's right hand preparing a new heaven and a new earth for us. And one day, He will return, not in a manger, not as a weak child, but in glory, coming down from heaven, riding on the clouds, bringing true, complete peace on earth and goodwill to all. But for now, in the meantime, let us fill our hearts with warmth, joy at the sight of baby Jesus, born poor and humble, yet sent by the Father, full of glory. Who would have thought that the hope of the entire world would rest in this precious child? Amen.